0: Welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. This is your host, Jay Lockenauer from Temple University. Uh the book we're considering today is The Soviet Israeli War, nineteen sixty seven to nineteen seventy three, the USSR's military intervention in the Egyptian Israeli Conflict by Isabella Gunor and Gideon Remez, uh, who are associate fellows at the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I chose this book in part because it's likely to arouse some controversy. It's it's an important book because it addresses so many uh, related interests surrounding the Arab-Israeli conflict of the late uh, 60s and early 1970s. It should be of interest not only to military historians and Israeli historians, Egyptian historians, but also historians of the Cold War. Because part of the story that they uncover uh, is the active involvement of both the Soviet Union and Russia – uh, and the United States in telling a certain story about the Egyptian-Israeli conflict uh, that isn't entirely truthful and that serves the purposes of actors such as Henry Kissinger uh, and even now today v- Vladimir Putin to mask the actual Soviet involvement in this conflict uh, that Genor and Ramez uncover. The author's extensive, even laborious work in the available source material is really quite impressive. They work especially with uh, memoirs and testimony of Soviet uh, soldiers and officers who were actually stationed in Egypt to show that Regular units of the Soviet Army were engaged with Israeli forces, uh, especially in the uh, air battles over the Sinai Desert. I was encouraged to review the book in part because their first book, published in 2008, called Foxbats Bats Over Damona," uh, won the silver medal from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy when they offered their inaugural book prize that year. I think you'll be just as impressed as I was uh, after you listened to the interview. So Isabella and Gideon, thanks for joining me. So I like to start the interviews by asking you to provide a kind of short intellectual biography. How did you come to this topic? What are your, what are your interests in, uh, that, that brought you to this particular topic?
1: Well, it, well, we have to start. We have to start very early. Both of us were journalists and both of us met uh, covering the disintegration of the Soviet Union. Uh, I was working for her artist newspaper. Given was the head of the foreign news desk uh, in Israeli national radio, and uh, it was, uh, you know, according to the old uh, Chinese wish, uh, uh, you know, you let you uh, live in an interesting times. So it was a very interesting time, and uh, we started to uh, to read uh, material that we never uh, expected to even to think about. Of uh, It was uh, fantastic. It was uh, something that uh, nobody paid enough attention uh, before. Our relationship actually
2: started out uh, as a professional one uh, after we met at a Sovietologist conference on January 3rd, 1989, a very dramatic period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we began a co-production interviewing people uh, throughout the Soviet Union by telephone, which was then already possible but still quite difficult. And um, we scored uh, some international exclusives, and actually, we became a source for quite a many, uh, quite a few other news outlets uh, worldwide, not only here in Israel. And uh, this became a project that went on for I don't know, ten, fifteen years, um, which uh, also wound up as a personal relationship between us, and that we already have two adult children. Uh, but the the, um, the the special or unique part of it was that because of the mass immigration that was then then, uh, arriving in Israel from the Soviet Union and later from the former Soviet Union, um, there was an enormous readership here for news in Russian and news from uh, the Soviet Union. And uh, there was, before the Internet got off to a real start, there was a massive uh, uh, Russian-language press here in Israel which copied a lot of material out of uh, various news outlets in the former Soviet Union, including some very obscure local ones, and um, Isabella used to come home every weekend with a pile of paper. We also had the first the Israeli consulate and then the embassy when the relations were restored. Send us piles of paper that they were about to recycle in Moscow. Instead of recycling it, they sent it by the diplomatic pouch to us, uh, so that we had a, a, a large reservoir. Of sources to go over, and we began seeing things that looked unbelievable at the time, as Isabella mentioned, because this was the period when uh, we're talking already, it was later than 89, of course, we're talking about the mid 90s, uh, when the body of sources that has become one of our main uh, source uh, materials for this book and the previous one began to appear en masse, and this was memoirs and other publications of the Soviet veterans who actually took part in uh, the intervention in the Middle East, which has become our specialty. Uh, And this began to appear and to be copied also in this Russian language press here. And the stories that we read there really were enormously intriguing because they contradicted everything that you might read in conventional Western and Israeli historiography up to that point.
0: So I think that's one of the interesting things about this book. I mean the title alone tells us that you're you're revising this history. It's no longer the Six Day War, a kind of lull, and then the Yom Kippur War. It's it's the Soviet Israeli War, nineteen sixty seven to
2: nineteen seventy-three. Yes. Indeed, if you if we want to really summarize the book, we're saying that in this period, Israel was actually engaged in direct head-on clash with the global superpower, uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, At varying degrees of intensity, but at the peak in 1969, 1970, um, there was an entire Soviet division deployed in Egypt, um, an air defense division, that is, anti-aircraft missiles and fighter squadrons, uh, which were directly engaged with the Israelis and, in fact, tipped the balance in the Israeli-Egyptian confrontation at that time, the War of Attrition, as it was known, in the Egyptians' favor, thus really setting, uh, creating the conditions for the Egyptian uh, attack uh, on Yom Kippur of 1973. So this is really the main message. We're talking here about a full-scale war, certainly in Middle Eastern terms, but I think also in global terms, uh, between Israel and the global superpower, which is the first and only time that this has ever happened.
0: So tell us a little bit about why we haven't known this story before. Why? What? Who? In whose interest was it to keep this under wraps? And what other stories have been told to kind of take the place of the this truth?
1: Well, let me start from there. Really surprised when one day I brought the newspapers home and started to read, and all of a sudden I see an interview with a former uh, Soviet uh, naval officer who uh, tells to uh, uh, Ukrainian journalists that he was on the board of the ship and uh, had to raise a group of volunteers, so called volunteers, in quotes, sort sort of sort of naval uh, personal group. And uh, prepare them for landing in Haifa uh, port. On June fifth, on, 19- on sixty seven. And I just couldn't believe my eyes because in nineteen sixty seven I was already living in Israel, and I remembered that time very well because we had to dig, literally dig trenches, to for civilians to. Take uh, uh, cover in case of uh, our place will be bombed, and so on. So I asked, say to given given, do you know anything about uh, uh, landing? No. We started to go. And let me just
2: interject that I fought in the Six Day War. I was uh, in the Israeli paratroops, uh, so that I had known the war only on the ground level uh, as a private. Uh, But uh, I, since then, had been involved in journalism. Uh, The 73 war, I already covered as a frontline correspondent. And uh, I had never heard heard or read of anything like a Soviet plan or Soviet intention uh, to invade Israel or to otherwise intervene against Israel in the Six-Day War. On the contrary, uh, all the previous uh, literature held that the Soviet Union didn't desire the war, that nobody had had desired the war, and the Soviet Union did actually ignite the crisis by spreading disinformation about so-called Israeli troop concentrations. But once that got out of hand, they tried together with the United States to restrain uh, their Middle Eastern allies, and when the war did break out, they did did their best together with the Americans to stop it. Though, actually, if you go over the documentation that already exists from that period, that wasn't exactly the case. Uh, but there was never any inkling uh, published that uh, the Soviets prepared quite a massive intervention uh as after drawing Israel, provoking Israel into a first strike so that it could be justified as intervening on behalf of the victims of aggression
0: so it, if i'm if I understand correctly, that's really the subject of your first book. Is that true? Yeah.
1: Yes, I would also add that uh, we uh, investigated the person who published this uh, interview and uh, we uh, made a contact with him and uh, we started to understand that the secrecy was one of the main uh, of, uh, well, main ways for the Soviet Union to keep everything covered. For example, uh, they would decide in Politburo about some steps. Um, not, at the moment, it doesn't matter what kind of steps they would like to take. Let's say, like uh, uh, starting the war in Afghanistan, you can't find any uh, one document about it because it was uh, the decision to start um, a military adventure in Afghanistan was uh, accepted in a very narrow circle of Politburo in some uh, summer house uh, in Crimea, and never registered. And even Gorbachev couldn't find anything besides a small piece of paper where it was written about uh, plan about A. Uh, So um, when you keep uh, things in such a secrecy, they don't uh, leak out. Now,
2: I have to add add an answer to your question. Um, You might say there was a perfect storm here because nobody, certainly not the Soviets, uh, but not even the other parties to the conflict um, had an interest in publicizing uh, the Soviet uh, the the measurements the the degree of the Soviet intervention. Um, just the Egyptians, for instance, once they did shift from the Soviet to the American camp in the mid seventies after the Yom Kippur War, certainly didn't want to credit the Soviets for having won or made any gains in the Yom Kippur War on their behalf. Um, And but as things were going on, the Israelis once, in order to recruit more U.S. support, tried to make a public statement about that, hey, there are Soviet anti-aircraft missiles being operated against us in Egypt, there are Soviet planes flying there against us in Egypt, and the Americans slapped them down so hard uh, that the Israelis never tried that again. This was in April 1970. Uh, And from then on... uh, Israeli officialdom only spoke about Egyptian aircraft, Egyptian missiles, and so forth, and the Soviet uh, aspect was played down and sometimes even censored out. Just to give one example, uh, the uh, only a couple of years ago, uh, they released some of the testimonies before the um, Agronat Commission, that was a commission of inquiry that was set up to establish why Israel was taken by such surprise on Yom Kippur of 1973. And one of the main witnesses, then the deputy chief of, of staff and the man who's considered the genius of the Israeli Armored Corps, stated very simply, We knew that we were actually fighting the Russians. That's a quote. It's the epigraph of our foreword to the book. Uh, but this was, I would say, played down as much as possible by Israeli them and over time, although the details were more or less known, either at the time or shortly afterward, um, the dots were not connected and certainly not in historiography. Uh, so the U.S. didn't want to make too much of it because they were already first the Johnson administration, then the Nixon administration, were already badly enough embroiled in Vietnam and they didn't want to point up a, a, another Soviet advance elsewhere in the world. Uh, the Egyptians, as I said, of course did not, and the Israelis, although they would have liked to point out uh, this, even when they shut down, when there was a, a famous dogfight of uh, July the 30th, 91, when the Israeli jets shot down four Soviet MiGs in, over Egypt uh, for none on the Israeli side, it was a famous victory, even then Israel didn't publicize it at the time until the foreign press got it and published it, and then the Israelis very gleefully uh, confirmed it, but uh, they didn't publish it in advance. So that there was, as I say, a perfect storm here for concealing the fact, and uh, it was just the happenstance that these Soviet veterans uh, in the disintegrating USSR had this pressing interest to show up their deeds in Egypt, Uh, we can discuss later why this came about, uh, that actually gave us the key and when we started checking it out against the reports that were already existing in the, li- say, in, in archival records and sometimes in the literature, we found that their reports were, I would say, not perfectly reliable, but on the whole, very reliable.
0: So that's one one part of the story that resonated with me as a as a military historian and someone who's worked on on veterans was the, the the kind of what's the word I'm looking for, maybe peskiness of the existence of these people who actually fought the war that just can't be ignored, no matter what happens with the official record and the meetings of the Politburo. You know, these, there are these people out there that want recognition, both in terms of financial benefits as, as veterans, but also just the recognition as kind of in the, in the legacy of the Spanish Civil War and so forth, the, the foreign fighters.
2: Exactly. Uh, because, you see, because the Soviet Union never confirmed that they had regular soldiers down there in Egypt, not only advisors to the Egyptian forces, which did an important job themselves, uh, but entire integral Soviet units, formations, were fighting there in Egypt. The Soviets never confirmed that. Um, So when the soldiers were repatriated to the Soviet Union, uh, they were quarantined, uh, they were made to sign pledges of secrecy, nothing was entered into their documents about their service in Egypt. When the Soviet Union began to disintegrate, most of them were approaching or already were in uh, pension age. The difference in benefits between a combat veteran and just a discharged soldier was already significant during the economic crisis uh, that befell the Soviet Union when it began to fall apart. And on top of that, it was also a matter of their dignity, A, towards their families. I mean, the grandchildren asked that, what did you do in the army? Uh, but also um, to uh, stand up for the reputations of their fallen comrades who had never been recognized as heroes. Um, And the Soviets lost at least a few dozen servicemen in the war with Israel, Um, probably more. Uh, There's no full count anywhere. We've compiled more or less a list that's already approaching 100. Somewhere between 70... I say over
1: seventy, between seventy and a hundred. Um, there is a promise to uh, in Moscow to put all the names on uh, on the uh, park uh, uh, on one of the hills around the Moscow, and put there all the names of the soldiers in the Cold War, including Egypt. And uh, what is very phrased uh, that uh, the. Uh, Law uh, that was passed uh, still in Yeltsin's time, of I think it was 94, 95, uh, which recognized their uh, battle uh, service uh, in the Middle East and in in other uh, parts of the world, doesn't recognize as an internationalist uh, soldier uh, people who were fighting in the Spanish War. So, uh, the, uh, for example, whoever survived till then couldn't get any uh, res- benefit, uh, recognition and benefits, and it was very important because uh, you could buy uh, food of certain places more than you could uh, that you can get in any other shop. You can uh, get uh, some gas for your car without killing for it, and so on and so on and so on. Now, we have to
2: add that this this literature really flourished. Uh, around the mid 1990s uh and, and uh, into in, the early 2000 the first year or two of putin's uh, administration there was still some of it appearing uh, it's mm, i would say that it hasn't been completely stamped out now but there are a lot
1: they,
2: they must exercise a lot more caution because just as there was a law passed in yeltsin's day recognizing their service there was a law passed in putin's under putin's administration criminalizing the falsification of history to the detriment of the Russian interest, uh, which means that if you publish anything historical that the administration doesn't like, you can wind up in jail. Uh, so there are a lot of people whom uh, we, who spoke with us quite freely in the 90s are no longer talking with anyone uh, without getting permission, without the interviewer getting permission first when they know that the, the permission is not going to be granted. And uh, we've pointed out a possible trend uh, in those, among those that do publish now to switch from uh, o- overtly documentary publications, their memoirs, research, articles, and so forth, to so-called fiction, but with very clear hints that it's based on their own experience, except that they can't be uh, charged with falsifying history when they say, well, this is just an imaginary story. Uh, and we bring in the book a few very, very uh, poignant examples of a people up to a general uh, who published his story about how his outer ego, an uh, engineering officer, was flown to Egypt on the very eve of the Six-Day War and actually helped, uh, of the Yom, sorry, of the Yom Kippur War, and actually uh, directed the, the canal crossing by one of the Egyptian armies uh, uh the next day um and there's no doubt the person is of sterling reputation um and uh his story stands up uh against any kind of criticism we uh, We develop tools to check these uh the authenticity and the accuracy of these memoirs so we, I mean, we can't take everything for granted that whatever appears in print is necessarily true um but for instance, some of them Uh, maintained journals, diaries at the time uh, against standing orders. They weren't supposed to do that. They weren't supposed to take photographs, and some of them did and smuggled them back. Uh, And, of course, anything that was written down at the time is even more reliable than things that people just recall uh, 30 or 40 years later. Um, On top of that, there's also the question of what the people were likely to know at the time. And here, for instance, there's a distinction between just the regular servicemen who are usually quite accurate in describing what they witnessed and what they did. But it's very interesting to see, uh, to read what they write about, what they knew about what was going on in the outside world. Um, And we know that this is what was imparted to them by their political officers, and that's an interesting uh, insight in itself. Uh, But it doesn't necessarily indicate the facts. Uh, On the other hand, a large part of this uh, literature uh, was contributed by the military interpreters of whom there were hundreds in Egypt, probably a total of, I would say, close to 2,000 over the years. Uh, They were drawn from all over the, the academies in the Soviet Union. So there were people with the training to write with some training in regional affairs. Of course, most of them were Arabic specialists, some of them Hebrew specialists, some of them English specialists. Um, And they were attached to ranking officers. So although they may have been just lieutenants or captains, they went along with the generals to meetings with the Egyptian top brass uh, to uh, sessions of the Egyptian military academy. Uh, They got to know a lot more than what you would expect uh, from people of their rank. Uh, And... uh, As I say, they were perceptive, they had the know-how, So, and many of them went on later to become leading academics or journalists uh, on Middle Eastern affairs. Uh, So they know what they're writing about, and a lot of it checks out very accurately uh, against what we know from Western and Israeli sources. So this part of the literature is particularly valuable.
0: And so your dis- your discussion there, I think, should make clear to, to listeners how careful you were with sources, which which is especially important in a in the context of a revisionist history. If you're really trying to retell this this story that has been hidden, you have to pay careful attention to the sources. And you've you've just made completely clear how how careful you were, and and acknowledging that they're not perfect, but but given the the problems that you're trying to overcome, certainly um, legitimate. And when there's so many of them, I mean, we're talking now.
2: Since we accumulated this literature as it was appearing, uh, much of it was in ephemeral uh, forums like uh, local newspapers, sometimes uh, the organs of various companies or institutions, uh, local newspapers, as I said, uh, sometimes on the Internet, but it didn't always stay on the Internet. uh, So that um, the fact that we printed them out, and filed them as it was coming out, probably gives us a unique collection of this literature, certainly outside uh, the former Soviet Union, and probably even inside the former Soviet Union, too.
1: Well, no, I I won't agree to them. I think that inside of the former Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. inside of Russia, they have a very good uh, uh, collection because they would follow everyone, and especially now, uh, when... uh, you can stop any publication uh, according to your uh, uh, directives. But uh, 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 what is uh, very exciting uh, is that uh, the people who live outside of Russian borders now, in uh, uh, r- different countries uh, it's considered to be, uh, they have published very freely even after the, uh, the people in Russia itself stopped. Uh, even talking uh, to, uh, to people. They have given some phone numbers in Moscow to, uh, to some um, uh, documentary of director of, uh, of television uh, to meet he wanted to make a, a movie about uh, the Soviet presence in Egypt at the, at the time. And they refused to meet him in Moscow. And uh, uh, in other parts of the of former Soviet Union, people are free to talk and free to write. And especially um, when they have to uh, to set rules, uh, to set, uh,
2: set the record straight, set the
1: record straight uh, because of some publication in Russia and they uh, cannot agree to it. And they are more, uh, sometimes they're also scared. One of them, for example, said to the um, journalist to interview him that he is afraid to talk because he doesn't have a place to live in and he is afraid that he uh, won't get any um, any apartment, uh, even small, for for him and his family if he will, he will open his mouth.
2: There, to give you an example of what you asked about before, checking out the veracity of these publications, of course now, when some of these uh, veterans have turned to fiction or so-called fiction, it makes it even more complicated. Uh, one of the latest examples was a former interpreter who is now a professor of English at a university in the Caucasus. He published a novel
1: uh,
2: about an, uh, entitled A Bullet Needs No Interpreter about the adventures of an interpreter in the Soviet military. And he was, and he was attached a squadron of Soviet reconnaissance aircraft that were based in Egypt and used to overfly the Sixth Fleet. And he writes there that, you know, under the coming from the mouth of his alter ego in this book, um, we used to fly so low over the USS Independence that we could make out the rivets on the deck. And once, uh, one of the planes flew too low and crashed into the sea. Now, um there's a veteran's literature of the U.S. Navy, too, of course. Uh, and we looked on uh, the website and other publications of the veterans of the USS Independence. And, of course, USS Independence was in the Mediterranean at the time, and it was overflown by these Tu-16 Soviet aircraft. But there's no record that they ever crashed into the sea. Uh, on the other hand, there was such a record that happened with a U.S. aircraft carrier carrier same year in the Norwegian Sea. So this particular author, being a professor, he's on the, the website uh, of his university. There was an email address there, so we wrote to him. This is one of the few cases that we did this in recent years because, on the whole, we're very wary not to get people into trouble, especially in Russia itself. And he responded to our first email. He stopped afterwards and said, yes, you're right. Uh, this I, I'm referring to an incident that happened to an airplane of the same squadron, same model, same year in the Norwegian Sea. I just added it here to add add color. So that, of course, is a pitfall that you have to guard against, when, especially when dealing with the fictionalized genre uh, of these memoirs. But on the other hand, it does give you some insights that you have to follow up on, because at the time that this Russian aircraft did crash into the norwegian sea there was some worry that it was carrying nuclear weapons and uh, if it was from the same squadron as the one in egypt that of course raises that question and we had to investigate that and so on and so forth so we spend a lot of time it's not for nothing that this book appeared almost 20 years after we started the project uh, a lot of time checking out every detail uh, from every possible point of view, going for U.S. documents, Israeli documents, British documents, um, German, documents. German documents, and in one, particular, in one particular instance, also even Egyptian documents, which are usually completely unaccessible, but the Israeli uh, forces captured a lot of Egyptian documents after the Israeli counter-crossing of the canal in the Yom Kippur War. And they're stored away in the intelligence uh, heritage center of the Israeli military. And we went there and just leafed through them. And there was a lot there concerning the joint activity with the Soviet advisors. Uh, so that was an important source for Egyptian documentation of the Soviet role, which no one practically uh, had used before.
0: So, And that's another aspect of the book that I think makes it relevant, is that it's... Um it speaks to not only the the confrontation between the, the Soviet Union and Israel and Egypt uh, in in the Middle East in the military sense, but it, it as you've just made clear, um, it tells us about the history of the Soviet Union and Russia and the freedom of the press and nationalism and so forth, the the evolution of that in the in the former Soviet Union. It talks about obviously the history of Israel, the history of Egypt. And then the history of the Cold War. So I think maybe we can, we can turn now, to, we, we addressed it a little bit when we talked about motives for suppressing the actual Soviet engagement, but there's another, I think, important intervention you make here, and that's about the, 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 the mythology about the expulsion of the Soviet forces by Sadat prior to the Yom Kippur War. Tell, can you tell us a little bit yes. about that?
1: Before that, I would like to point uh, to tell you another uh, story by, uh, um, about our sources. In both uh, instances, for, uh, in both books, they have been asked to cut uh, the sources because there are too many and... It's, by the editors, not by censorship. No, uh, uh, yes, by editors, because um, uh, they, uh, they take uh, too much uh, place, too much paper. And uh, we were prepared to uh, give up the publication but not to cut one source. Because it, um, both of our, uh, both of the books are going against uh, what has uh, been uh, uh, accepted as a uh, prevalent history, and uh, uh, if people want to check it, they have to have uh, all uh, our sources before them, and not uh, um, uh, let us say combine in. Uh, one paragraph or all, uh, full page or something that they have, uh, they they can to distinguish between the source and source and check if they uh, like it. So this is uh, just to tell you how we value uh, the um, uh, the sources themselves, uh, what they can uh, add to um, uh, to the researcher. This
2: delayed the publication of the book by about three years uh, because we had to go from one publisher to another until uh, one, uh, which we're very grateful to, Hearst Publishers in London, was willing to accept the book at full length. And uh, we appreciate that greatly because we think it's enormously important, first of all, that this whole new genre of sources be presented to the English reader. Uh, It hasn't been done before. And uh, this may also open some new avenues of research for other conflicts as well. Because we know, for instance, that the Middle Eastern veterans took their cue from the Afghansi, from the much more numerous and younger people who returned from the Afghanistan war and also fought for their rights. Um, And it may very well be possible for researchers now uh, to do the same for the Afghanistan war. As we have, as we hope we have done uh, for the Soviet-Israeli war, uh, so that, that was very important to us. Now, to get back to your question um, about the, the the Cold War, the Cold War aspect, and the the, the myth of the so- the Sadat's expulsion of the Soviet advisors from Egypt, that's one of a series of prevailing concepts uh, in Western and Israeli historiography. Uh, that we have had to challenge uh, by checking these new sources and also revisiting the existing ones, uh, because in many cases, and we point to real uh, re- the real villains of the story uh, in terms of falsifying the historical record, are two. One is Muhammad Hassanin Haikal, the Egyptian, the propagandist who established the story of how the massive soviet intervention in 1969-70 began and henry kissinger on the american side who more or less established the myth of how it ended by sadat supposedly expelling the soviets in nineteen seventy two uh, thanks to his intervention of course, of course. Uh, yeah. because both of them were very quick to publish their versions in Heikal's case it was a series of books in Kissinger's case, it was his voluminous memoirs. Uh, They published them early, and they weren't the first in history, of course, to really establish their version of history by coming out with it first. Uh, But they certainly did a very good job of it, because if you follow the trail of footnotes from one book to another in the vast historiographic literature, you find that in a very, very high percentage, I'd say almost 100% of the cases, it all harks back somehow to Haikal or Kissinger for those two events that I just mentioned. Now, to take the, 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 this matter of Sadats expelling the Soviets, supposedly expelling the Soviets, the whole uh, concept so far was that because of the global process of the time, and following the Soviets' bad experience in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, they were propelled towards responsible and cautious foreign policy, and they went along uh, with Kissinger's, you know, trademark policy of the time, and therefore they were uh, unwilling to support Egypt's offensive plans against Israel. They weren't willing to support to provide the necessary offensive weapons, particularly medium-range missiles and long-range attack bombers. And therefore, after uh, the apotheosis of uh, detente in the May 1972 summit in Moscow uh, said that there was a rift between Sadat and the Soviets and Sadat abruptly expelled the Soviet advisors from Egypt and the more we looked into it the more we saw that this never happened um, what happened was uh, that the Soviet um, integral units that is, the anti-aircraft division and the auxiliary units that came with it, had accomplished their mission by the end of the War of Attrition. They had imposed on Israel, they had forced Israel to accept a very unfavorable ceasefire, and because Israel was sustaining such losses of aircraft, and especially the crews of those aircraft, which were irreplaceable, even if the Americans were willing to replace the aircraft, which they not always were, um, that Israel was forced to accept the ceasefire, on August 7, uh, 1970, and the Soviets and Egyptians immediately violated it by advancing the SAM batteries up to the canal bank, which created a no-fly zone for the Israelis on the other side, and this essentially created the precondition for the canal crossing on Yom Kippur. Uh, so once the Soviets had, had accomplished that mission, which was a very important accomplishment, and they are very proud of it, the veterans who accomplished it, um, they uh, they were no longer really necessary there. Egyptian personnel was completing training in the Soviet Union to operate the weapons that before that only the Soviets could operate. Uh, and the Soviets and Egyptians both had an interest in returning them home. But they couldn't do that openly because they had never confirmed they were there. So now under the guise of expelling Soviet advisors, it was the integral units that were repatriated, but the advisors actually stayed in Egypt and continued preparing uh, the Egyptian military for the ultimate canal crossing in 1973. The work plans are there. These are among the captured documents, the work plans, the details, the personal lists of the advisors who continued operating with the Egyptian forces. Now, the really intriguing part here is that all this should have been questioned at the time because a few days before the Yom Kippur War, one of the few signs that the Israelis did pick up that something was afoot was the Soviets evacuated the dependents of the Soviet advisors from Egypt. So, what advisors in Egypt? They were expelled 15 months earlier, weren't they? And yet, um, there it is. Of course, it's a lot more complicated. I've oversimplified it now. But now we have both the documentation from the Soviet, from the advisors themselves, who say, yes, we were recalled to Cairo, and we spent a few weeks just idling in Cairo, which created some drinking problems, and then we were sent back to, to, uh, to the Egyptian units uh, and continued our work. Um, and the Egyptian documents show exactly the same, that there was a mass recall of all the Soviet advisors from the field units to Cairo which was never done usually. Usually they were rotated singly to create a continuity, right? So but this time, say, all the five advisors plus interpreter who were attached to an Egyptian brigade are all recalled to Cairo at at the same time, two days before Sadat makes his dramatic announcement. Uh, And this creates an influx of hundreds, if not thousands, of Soviet advisors into Cairo, which is bound to be noticed uh, by military attaches and other foreign agents and reported back home and this cemented the idea that the Soviets were being expelled but they just filtered back to their units a few weeks later and they remained and there was no rift and the weapons that Sadat supposedly was denied showed up in Egypt within a few months both the Scud missiles and the Su-20 and Su-17 uh, attack bombers which supposedly were denied to him and. And this was known, if not exactly at the time, then very shortly later. And yet, the the concept remained. Uh, and uh, trying to figure out how it was established so effectively uh, is really just as intriguing as following the developments themselves. And these are two strands that run parallel in the book.
0: So I think... Um the Russian side of the story and the, their motivations and uh, the motivations for their actions is is becoming clearer, thanks to your uh, discussion. How, and, I'm, and I'm, if you can't answer this, I, I don't recall this directly coming out of the book, but how has the evolution of Israeli political culture um, influenced the telling of this story, and how might that change knowing what we now know thanks to your book?
1: Well, I would say one thing, that Israelis always looked for truth, some kind of truth, because of so many fallen soldiers and so many families who became uh, families of the fallen fallen soldiers. And people wanted to know how their deer uh, got killed. There are still some cases of uh, uh, missing in action, and uh, p- people are looking, still looking for, uh, for possibility to find uh, uh, how, when, where, and so on, why, and, why. and why. So, uh, what I can say about uh, uh, my uh, knowledge of Israeli sources is that there was um, a trend to write truthfully whatever was known at, at the time, and sometimes it, there was a need to uh, make it fit the international. Let us let, uh, let me say it. Uh, ex- exposure of the same uh, uh, of the same occurrences. Although
2: you know, although the Israeli military managed to reverse the course of the Yom Kippur War about a week in uh, by first. Uh you know, just uh, halting the Egyptian advance and then making a countercrossing of the canal. There was a lot of heroism there, some of it by people I knew, and I lost a lot of friends in that war. But the initial uh, surprise uh, of the Yom Kippur War is a lasting national trauma in Israel. Uh, We've never quite overcome it. Uh, And... The idea that we have to really investigate it, understand it, in order to prevent this ever happening again, um, is something that's very pervasive in the Israeli political culture. And I have to say that although our findings, both in the previous book and in the present one, have aroused a lot of opposition in the Israeli academic circles, um, we have... And uh, we we still have a lot of debate going on here in a very collegial way, but uh, still a debate. Um, there's not been, with one exception, which I'll get to perhaps in a moment, uh, with one exception there's never been any official attempt to suppress or to silence us. Um,
1: no, I would say that even the, the military that, that we know and um, who... who whom we met uh, during this year, they are very supportive of our uh, findings because uh, they also have some more stories and they come to us with their Mm stories. But uh, uh, what I would like to stress, uh, I think that we didn't mention it, but uh, working on both of the books, we, uh, let us say, um, that we uh, discovered uh, the plan of action by the Soviet uh, military and political uh, establishment. And uh, if you read uh, with some attention, you can see uh, the, uh, this plan and how it is uh, employed in other uh, cases. For example, uh, in 2008, we were asked to write uh, um, analysis an analysis of uh, uh, the Russian uh, of war against Georgia. and uh, uh, we mentioned that uh, it uh, fits the plan that we discovered in our first book, which was par- published a year le- uh, before, and uh, we would say that uh, the next of the um, trigger would be uh, Crimea and the Ukraine. And uh, you see, uh, for, uh, some people may say that we are a uh, clear clubvoy and some people will say that they are conspiracy the conspiracy theory uh, mm-hmm. theory or well, some will say that you know you you read your material very carefully so it's uh, i think that uh, both of the books uh, can be very interesting for a layman who is interested in uh, military but also for specialists uh, uh uh, that uh, can think about uh, uh, similar uh, situations in uh, of, in future. Uh, you know, I like to say that in one of the books, uh, other books, uh, there is a sentence like "the good plan always uh, 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 wins." So it's like uh, the same kind, uh, same. Um, Uh, relation is uh, uh, in Russia to uh, their plans, the same plan always wins. And you can see it now in uh, Syria.
2: Yes, there is is a definite analogy here. It's not a perfect analogy, historical analogies are never perfect, but nonetheless Latakia and Tartus in Syria are now for the Russians uh, pretty much what for the Soviets Alexandria and Port Said in Egypt were uh, 50 years ago. Uh, they need these bases in the warm waters of the Mediterranean, uh, and they're willing to invest a great political, uh, military, and economic effort into maintaining them. Uh, it's uh, it's it sometimes uh, and the Syrian story has obscured uh, from uh, wider attention in the West the fact that the so the Russians have even reestablished a base in Egypt now. Uh, there's a small but, uh, growing, uh, Russian presence now at Sidi Bahani, uh, which is near the Libyan border, from which, which they're using now to project some influence into Libya itself, also in the ongoing civil war there. Uh, and, uh, there have been joint exercises by the Soviet and Egyptian military at a place with a lot of historical connotations, El Alamein. Uh, so, um... Uh, the the present-day uh, implications are, are there. Uh, to the political issue that you, you mentioned uh, a moment ago, uh, I would like to add this, uh, that uh, although we don't have any political agenda in our research, um, we're not making any prescriptive uh, projections into the pre- present-day Israeli policy. Uh, I'm a left-winger in Israeli politics. Isabella is more of a centrist. Um, but our, uh, our findings have been uh, more welcomed uh, in is the Israeli really right wing than, uh, than in my own left. Uh, and um, one reason for that is uh, that we have not found uh, much evidence in the material that we went over. Of course, absence of evidence is not absolute proof of evidence that, you know, that it, things didn't happen but it's indicative. Uh, And uh, we have not found much basis uh, for the very fashionable uh, trend in recent years uh, to blame Israel for rejecting so-called Egyptian peace feelers um, in the years leading up to the Yom Kippur War. Uh, What we found is that the Soviets and the Egyptians, each one for their own motives, uh, were locked in to an aspiration for a military achievement uh, before any political settlement from the summer of 67, from a few weeks after...
1: No, even before... before even, the, even before. While
2: the war was even in progress in, in June 67 and certainly very shortly afterwards. Um, one of the interesting discoveries we've made is the name of the Soviet architect of the canal crossing plan, Lieutenant General Pyotr Lashchenko, who was not mentioned once, we can say this thanks thanks to Google, Uh, not mentioned once, the Western literature on the period, nor even in those intelligence reports that have so far come to light, who was in Egypt in the summer of 67 to organize, first of all, the Egyptians for defense, because they were sure that the Israelis would press on across the Suez Canal and storm Cairo, but also to plan the ultimate recrossing of the Canal East, uh, by the Egyptians. And he had drawn up a plan and presented it with the attached list of weaponry that would be necessary and the training program that would be necessary to prepare the Egyptians for it by the end of 67, or early 1968, at the very latest. Um, and they followed this plan methodically and systematically until they felt that the conditions were right. I've already discussed the, the, the fact, you know, the, the contribution to creating the no-fly zone over the canal that made it possible, but also the level of training of the Egyptian army, the induction of the necessary weaponry, uh, the political conditions. Um, and what usually ha- is the approach in the historiography up to now was that the Soviets kept pressing the Egyptians not to go to war at all. Uh, what we found is they pressed them frequently not to go to war yet, until you're completely ready. Um, so, the Israeli's government has to be held responsible perhaps for you know, trying every possibility to prevent the war. Um, but the so- so-called Egyptian peace feelers that were sent out, particularly in the two years preceding the war, uh, as we found, were mostly smokescreen for the military preparations that were in progress in the uh, collaboration with the Soviet Union uh, at the same time. And there's even a funny incident in the book uh, where Sadat's emissary, Khafiz uh, Ismail, makes his first visit to Washington uh, in, in 1973, in early 1973, and presents uh, the Egyptian peace plan to Kissinger. Um, General Ahmad Ismail, uh, the Egyptian minister of war, is in Moscow going over the war plans and the list of weaponry and so on with the Soviets. And when Brezhnev and Kissinger meet to prepare the San Clemente summit in the summer of 73, uh, and Kissinger tells him what Hafez uh, Ismail has told him in Washington, and Brezhnev says, Well, we have our Ismail too. And uh, both of us will someday, will someday become two Ismails. Uh, and this goes over. There's no indication that Kissinger even picked up on this hint, you know, that, you know, don't put too much credence in these Egyptian uh, peace leaders.
0: Well, fascinating. I think this is a, a great place to start. I mean, we don't want to give everything away. We want people to, to read the book. So uh, I want to thank you both for your time. And I, I'm going to, I do this with my interviewees. I should have warned you, I suppose, to allow you to prepare. So if you want to punt on this one, you, you can. But I always ask, what Book have you read recently that that our listeners could also be interested in besides yours?
1: Oh, it's a very difficult question, absolutely difficult question because we have been immersed in uh, uh, Russian history, uh, literature, and uh, of, uh, of here. I would like first of all to say that uh, uh, this literature is uh, a very a very interesting, and if. Uh, uh, Anyone uh, uh, want to make uh, an acquaintance with it? It will have to be translated. But uh, you could still the heroism day to day heroism of these people who were uh, sent to unknown places, sometimes didn't know where they uh, were well, sent. But how they treat each other, how they. Uh, of except uh, Egyptians and in inter uh, interrelation between uh, two absolutely different people of, of, of on the social on the cultural and uh, even religious points and so on this is very interesting uh, to and uh, another uh, was I don't remember when I write fiction lately because uh, the head is uh, occupied yeah, with...
2: Uh, well, so Isabella has a, yeah, a nice so. Russian uh, joke um, about a writer from uh, Chukotka, you know, the uh, the uh, province of uh, Russia that's opposite the Bering Strait from Alaska uh, who fancies right. himself as a novelist and he, he sends his uh, manuscript to uh, publisher after publisher in Moscow and gets rejected and finally one of them asks him in. Uh, So he goes to Moscow, and the the editorial board uh, has him in for a session, and they ask him, uh, have you read War and Peace? No. Uh, Have you read Crime and Punishment? No. Uh, Have you read Dead Souls? Uh, And the guy explodes and says, look, I'm not the Chukchi who reads, I'm the Chukchi who writes. (laughs) (laughs) Well well put. Reading the veterans' uh, memoirs, has gotten me more interested than I ever was in reading memoirs in general. Uh, and the, the three last books that I have read are memoirs by people who have nothing to do with this case, um, they, but are just beautifully written memoirs which I would recommend to anyone. Uh, one is Russell Baker's, uh, the former New York Times columnist, has a beautiful uh, memoir of his childhood. Uh, Another by S.J. Perlman, uh, American Jewish humorist, who has a wonderful uh, memoir of his childhood in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, And the third is now out of fashion because there's some nasty words there about an Indian tribe. Uh, But still, it's a very good book, uh, Betty McDonald's uh, The Egg and I. Uh, I um, suddenly have a complete new insight on the value of memoirs uh, and although these have nothing to do with our case, they may have something to do with our next project, but uh, we'll leave that for our this next was talk. That's
1: what I wanted to <laughs> say, that it reminds me that we read the memoirs. Uh, one of the, um, I think, more, more very interesting memoirs were by Nabokov. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, really, the, the, and you can enjoy the writing, you can enjoy the style, and uh, also um, uh, uh, the matter. And uh, I think it's sometimes some humorous uh, books, uh, which are very easy to forget, but uh, you enjoy them uh, when you're reading them.
0: Thank you both for your time and your suggestions, and best of luck with future projects. You've been listening to my interview with Isabella Ganor and Gideon Remez about their new book, The Soviet-Israeli War, 1967-1973, to the USSR's Military Intervention in the Egyptian-Israeli Conflict. It should be appearing in the next week or so in the United States with Oxford University Press. I believe it's already out in Great Britain. If you're in Europe, you should be able to get your copy. This is Jay Lockenauer from Temple University. Thanks for listening to New Books in Military History. Hope you'll come back.